driving down a dark country road with the headlights from the vehicle illuminating the path in front of you. Suddenly, a tall, gray, man-like figure appears on the road in front, his glowing red eyes piercing through the night. In a flash, a massive pair of wings unfurl from its back, filling the width of the road. This creature would become known as the Mothman. What is the Mothman? An alien? A supernatural entity? Or an undiscovered species? Is it a harbinger of death? Or is it a savior sent to warn us of impending doom? In this episode, we look at the history of Point Pleasant, West Virginia's Mothman. We'll discuss earlier Mothman sightings. We'll look at an entity known as Indrid Cold. And finally, we'll finish the episode with the collapse of the Silver Bridge. Welcome to another episode of the Cabinet of Dr. Mystery. I am your host, Dr. Mystery. I tried to create living zombies. Reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. All I gotta do is relax and they'll take me to their death. Last chance to evacuate Earth before it is recycled. This is a wicked, wicked world. We are all evil in some form or another. Welcome, Mysterians. Our main source for this episode is John Keel's Mothman Prophecies. Before we begin our discussion on the Mothman and all the related entities and sightings and, and all the weird goings-on in Point Pleasant, let's, let's set the scene. So Point Pleasant is a city in Mason County, West Virginia, in the U.S. It's also where the Ohio and the Kanawha River meet. Point Pleasant is a rural farming community with a relatively small population recorded at under 5,000 in the 2010 census. Now, before the land was called Point Pleasant, there was an indigenous community living on the land. On October 10th, 1774, an indigenous chief given the English name Cornstalk, he led over a thousand of his men against an equal number of colonial troops at Point Pleasant, and after a violent battle, Chief Cornstalk was defeated. Now, after Cornstalk's defeat, he called for peace. And a few years later, when he returned to Point Pleasant, the local military feared an attack, so these colonial soldiers, they seized Chief Cornstalk, they kidnapped him, and they took his companions and they imprisoned them all together in Fort Randolph as hostages. Now, Cornstalk's son was allowed to go and see him at some point, and when his son went to visit his father, they were at Fort Randolph, and both father and son were murdered. His son was murdered, I believe it was by a colonial troop member or, you know, one of the settlers in the area, and uh, then they said, okay, since his son is, has been murdered, we have to kill Chief Cornstalk because he's going to seek revenge for his son's death. So... When they went to where Cornstalk was being held, they, they say that he uh, knew that they were coming and he stood there and, you know, courageously he stood there until they, they shot him down. There's this saying that uh, when he, or I guess it's more of a legend, uh, when Cornstalk died with his last dying breath, he cursed the town. Now, this is largely believed as a myth. The, the curse of Cornstalk is largely believed as a myth mainly because there's a play from 1923 that shows the chief cursing the town as he died, right? So some people will still say that the land is cursed because of Cornstalk, well, not because of Cornstalk, because of the colonial uh, soldiers who killed Cornstalk and his family. But a lot of people believe that it's just a myth and that, that that curse is something that was made up strictly for the play. But the one thing that does remain is that indigenous people that are from the area, uh, they will avoid certain areas like the TNT area, which we'll discuss. And they believe that either it's cursed or that there's bad omens. And so indigenous people in the area don't live on the land. They'll go into town or they'll, they'll go into forage or to hunt in these areas, but they won't live in that area. So as I go through the description of the Mothman, I want you to think about 
being in a dark area, either by yourself or with someone else, and just picture being alone or being with one other person or a small group of people, and you come across this creature hiding in the bushes, or, you know, it just, it randomly appears as if it was laying down and just stood up. The Mothman is described as a bipedal winged humanoid. Now, despite his name, his appearance is in no way moth-like. Usually he's described as having a darker gray or black complexion, but occasionally witnesses describe him as having a brownish color to him. The Mothman is approximately 7 feet tall, with a wingspan of 10 to 15 feet. One thing that's consistent over eyewitness accounts is the glowing red eyes that he has. Some accounts claim he has no head, and that the glowing red eyes are in fact in his chest, which I'll post that on the socials. It's really interesting. It's not like the, the headless horseman kind of thing. It's not like Ichabod Crane. It's more of an idea of the, the Mothman and the body itself was built to not have a head. It looks kind of like a, a muscular body, like a muscular torso with almost like a triangular uh, shape with the base of the triangle at the top where the head would be. And, you know, it actually, the, the drawings that I've seen of this headless Mothman, it is actually a lot more frightening than if the Mothman did have a head. So I'll post those on the socials, but just the thought of this winged, this seven foot tall, massive winged creature with glowing red eyes in its chest. That is freaky. So a detailed description of the Mothman's face and feet have yet to come to light. However, one woman who claims she saw his face clearly, she couldn't describe it. She could only describe it as, quote, horrible and monstrous. Several people, including this woman who claims to have seen the Mothman's face, they have suffered terrible nightmares, psychological distress, felt fearful and disorientated. And the thing that really gets me is uh, some of these people have felt these effects from the Mothman sighting, they've felt it for months or even years afterwards. That, I think, is, is the, the worst thing is like, you know, maybe it would be cool to see a Mothman or to see aliens, but, you know, the idea is that when these people see these things, they're either so frightened or they're overcome with a sense of fear or paranoia. And as we'll get into here, probably more so in, in part two of the Mothman series, we'll discuss a few Men in Black sightings. And, you know, if you want to learn more about the Men in Black, uh, you can go back in our archives. I believe it was episode four where we discussed the Men in Black. We'll talk a little bit about Mary Heyer and her encounters with the Men in Black in our next episode. In this book, John Keel talks a lot about the Men in Black. So since we've already covered the Men in Black in a full episode, I'm not going to be pulling too much Men in Black material from John Keel's Mothman prophecies, but we will be discussing Mary Heyer and her encounters because I feel like the encounters that she experienced are relevant to the Mothman story. The Mothman would usually waddle with an odd shuffle before massive wings unfurl, propelling him straight upwards into the night. Now, We'll, we'll get into this a little bit later in, in further detail uh, about experiences with the Mothman shooting straight up into the sky. But if you think about a winged creature, we talked about Ahuls in a previous episode. In uh, episode 14, we sat down with Hassan and we talked about the giant flying ape-like creature of the Java's jungles of Indonesia. And now, when you're talking about the Ahuul and you're talking about bat-like creatures, they have, they, they have their ankles which are reversed. So when a bat will be roosting in a nest or wherever it roosts, in a cave or whatever, it will actually drop down from the sky. And it'll use that momentum from falling to propel itself and, and use that to pick up speed and take flight. Now, when we're talking about birds and other feathered winged creatures, the majority of them, they have their feet which are facing forward. And that is because instead of roosting somewhere upside down and letting go and dropping down and catching flight that way, most birds will hop 
or they'll run or they'll do something where they can get a little bit of momentum and they'll take flight that way. So, you know, there is one bird that I read about in this book about how he will go frantically back and forth in a one to two foot space uh, and it looks hilarious before he takes off in flight. When we're talking about the Mothman, most accounts of Mothman sightings say that he is able to literally propel himself straight upwards. So instead of, you know, having to take a couple jumps or to take a run at it and then use that momentum to take flight, the Mothman will literally shoot straight up into the air. And some eyewitnesses claim that it was similar to a helicopter in that he was able to just shoot directly straight upwards which I think is probably the most terrifying thing ever. It probably gives him an advantage of being able to shoot up into the sky and take off and and get out of sight a lot quicker. Many eyewitnesses claim he can fly at speeds over 100 miles an hour and that he is attracted to fast-moving vehicles. So like I said, in episode 14, we discussed the Ahul, which is the massive winged ape-like creature. So before we discuss sightings of the Mothman, I thought we should probably talk about other winged creatures that could be related to this creature or could have inspired this creature and that sort of thing. Now, there is a story that I'd like to tell you about a famous Russian traveler. Now, on July 11, 1908, V.K. Arseniev was trekking along the Gobili River when he encountered a creature. This is his story. I saw the mark on the path that was very similar to a man's footprint. My dog Alpha bristled up, snarled, and then something rushed about nearby, trampling among the bushes. However, it didn't go away, but stopped nearby, standing stock still. We had been standing like that for some minutes. Then I stooped, picked up a stone, and threw it towards the unknown creature. Then something happened that was quite unexpected. I heard the beating of wings. Something large and dark emerged from the fog and flew over the river. A moment later, it disappeared into the dense mist. My dog, badly frightened, pressed itself against my feet. After supper, I told the Udi men about this incident, and they broke into a vivid story about a man who could fly in the air. Hunters often saw his tracks, tracks that would appear suddenly and vanish suddenly in such a way that they could only be possible if the man alighted on the ground then took off again into the air. So the fact that he saw this creature, he saw this beast in the woods with him, and he saw the footprints, it's interesting that he went back to the villagers, the indigenous people of the area, and he said, hey, I saw this winged creature, and they're like, oh yeah, that's Fred. Yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, he's cool. He's cool, man. He's all right. You know, like that, that to me means that there has to be something happening because if, if it's commonplace for them, then what's going on, right? When we first start reading about the Mothman, when we start looking into this book, John Keel treats us to a host of other creatures that he thinks could be related, right? Mythological creatures or, or uh, cryptid creatures. And he starts looking at other sightings of winged humanoid creatures. In several parts of the world, There are myths and even some eyewitness tales about winged humans and creatures similar to harpies. In Greek mythology, and I guess in Roman mythology, a harpy is a half-human and half-bird personification of storm winds. Some sightings of a humanoid bird-like creature occur some 50 years before the sightings of the Mothman. These sightings can be referenced in literature like The Haunted Valley and More Folk Tales by James Gay Jones. When we're looking at the history of humanoid bird-like creatures, we obviously see the Garuda and the Thunderbird. A Garuda looks either like a giant bird or a giant winged humanoid with bird-like features. So it's like Bird Person from Rick and Morty, except way more majestic Some depictions of sculptures or paintings show the Garuda with a humanoid face, while others show it with a face and beak like an eagle's. The Garuda is said to be a protector with the power to travel anywhere and represents birth and heaven and, a cool fact, 
it's the enemy of all snakes. So it's like St. Patrick with bird's wings. Ooh, that'd be cool. Oh, like a beak. I think it would be cool if it has like a like a humanoid face, but it had like a like a badass beak. That would be cool. Now, the Thunderbird. The Thunderbird is a North American indigenous legend, and it's claimed to be a powerful spirit that appears in the form of a bird. Now, interesting fact about the Thunderbird. Lightning was said to appear from its beak, and rolling thunder was said to be from the beating of the Thunderbird's wings. The Thunderbird is said to shoot lightning out of its glowing eyes or to shoot snakes of lightning out of its beaks or out of its beak. These lightning bolts that it would shoot out, they're occasionally said to have wolf or dog-like heads with serpent tongues. I can only imagine what it would look like. Like, what, it, what would it be like if you saw lightning and thunderstorm and the lightning was close to you and it looked like a dog was being shot at you and it was like, had like a forked tongue. For many people, the Thunderbird has become a symbol of power, strength, and nobility. So like I said before, in this book, we really get introduced to multiple sightings of winged creatures all across the world, dating back to the 1800s. We also see similar sightings of winged airships, which are assumed to be ornithopters. So he, he does a little bit of research and he tries to uh, sort out what he thinks is an ornithopter. So an ornithopter is basically a craft, an aircraft, that instead of having you know a propel system like a, a jet engine or whatever, it will use the momentum of flapping wings to get up off the ground. So Leonardo da Vinci was famous for this uh, flying ornithopter with giant flapping wings. Keel theorizes that some of these sightings could be people seeing ornithopters because some ornithopters were dark in color. Uh, some ornithopters would have wings that looked very similar to bird, bird wings, right? They would be bird-like wings, and they would be massive uh, and just flapping in the, in, in the uh, air. You know, you would never think, oh, that's an ornithopter, right? You would think, holy shit, that is definitely a giant flying mothman. So I could totally see how some sightings of these, these, you know, winged flying creatures from, you know, dating back to the 1800s, that, that they could be ornithopters. I think that's very plausible. Now, there have been sightings of a man-like creature. Some sightings claim that he gives off an eerie glow. And most claim that he has giant leathery wings. Now, the sighting of this man-like creature uh, has been seen or reported all across the U.S., including Washington, Illinois, Virginia, Texas, and New York. Just to highlight one of those stories, in May 1961, a New York pilot who encountered the creature was quoted as saying, it was a damned big bird, bigger than an eagle. For a moment, I doubted my sanity because it looked more like a pterodactyl. Now, if we travel back to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, most of the sightings of the Mothman happened in the TNT area. Point Pleasant's TNT area was home to a World War II munitions plant from 1942 to 1945. Now, the munitions plant and the area, most of the buildings in the area, they're all abandoned. This place, this TNT area, was a dumping ground for chemical and toxic waste, and in the early 1980s, contamination of the land was confirmed when local fishermen discovered a red water seep. So we'll get into this in a little bit here, maybe um, more so in the next episode. But some people theorize that maybe these, these chemicals and this toxic waste could have had some effect on the local wildlife. And some people theorize that uh, what people are seeing is a giant owl. But if we're just going to be realistic here for a second, I don't know of any chemicals that, that I can think of or any combinations of chemicals which would... Um, not kill an animal, but in fact, make it six times its normal size, you know. 
maybe there's a possibility of that, but we're, we're not really in a comic book. So if you get nuclear waste dumped on you, you're probably just going to have a terrible, terrible death. And you're probably not going to become Daredevil or Superman. FYI. Don't put your dick in nuclear waste. That's my advice for the day. The first known sighting of the Mothman is a really interesting one. On November 12, 1966, a small group of men were digging a grave an hour from Point Pleasant. Out of nowhere, they spotted what they described as a brown human being lifting off from the tree line and flying directly overhead of them. Now, in our in episode 14, we discussed the Ahuls. We also discussed the Ropin and other mythological creatures or cryptids that were said by the locals to go to grave sites and dig up shallow graves and feast on the bodies. So we we don't have any evidence of this. It has never been recorded that the Mothman has done this. But when I read that, I just thought that that's interesting. Maybe. Maybe the Mothman was looking to scavenge. But like I said, there's absolutely no evidence of this. This is just something that popped in my head. It's much more likely that the Mothman was just out in that area and he was wondering what they were doing or he was curious what they were doing. Three days later, at around midnight on November 15, 1966, two young couples were driving through the TNT area when they rounded a corner and were greeted by two seemingly floating bright red circles. These bright red circles were about two inches in diameter and about six inches apart. One of the women gasped as the driver put his foot on the brake. Soon it became apparent that the circular lights were attached to a large creature. And through the blackness, the group saw a seven-foot bipedal man-like figure with humongous wings folded behind its back. As they sped away in a panic, when they were driving down the road, they suddenly saw the same creature, or another one like it, up on a hill ahead of them. I think the Mothman went, oh, you want to play? And just went ahead of them, like just zoomed ahead of them. When they saw the Mothman in front of them as they were driving past, it shot straight up into the sky and it took off after them. Now, it's important to note that these, this, th- these two young couples, they claim that they were going over 100 miles an hour and that the Mothman was able to keep pace with them. Earlier that same evening, a local resident, Nuo Partridge, describes a more menacing encounter. So this happened around the same time, but it was in a different part of the city. While watching television with his dog, the screen suddenly went black only to be replaced by a weird pattern which filled the screen. Loud whining sounds that would crescendo in a high pitch and then cease were coming from his barn. As his dog began to howl, he opened the door to investigate the noise. The dog shot out of the door, rushing towards the direction of the noise. Although Partridge called out to his dog numerous times, the dog never returned home. Partridge returned to the house to fetch his gun, but when he returned to the front door, he was too frightened to return outside, and again, his dog never came home. The two couples that were driving in the vehicle said that while the Mothman chased them down the road, they spotted a big dog lying on the side of the road, which they assumed it was a body and that the dog was dead. I don't think that the group really believed what they saw, like they were kind of in disbelief. So when they got to the city limits, some accounts say that they turned around to go back and see if they could see the creature again. And, and you know, they questioned their sanity kind of thing. So when they reached the city limits, they turned around and on their way back out of town, they passed the dog's body and the dog, like the area where the dog was lying and the dog was gone. And they even pulled over off of the side of the road to go and search for the body of the dog. So the two couples returned to the city and drove to the police station and made a report. This report was published in the local newspaper and a slew of would-be monster hunters set out to the TNT area to capture the Mothman. While all these armed men were prowling through the woods, a carload of people were struck by a bright red light in the sky. In this vehicle, Raymond Wamsley, his wife, 
and their friend Marcella Bennett and her infant daughter Tina were all there. They were headed to see their friends, another married couple, just outside of town. When they arrived at their friend's place, they found out that the couple was not at home and that their teenage children were the only ones there. Saying their goodbyes and returning to their vehicle, suddenly, an ominous shadowy figure emerged, seemingly out of nowhere. Marcella said that it had seemed as if the creature had been lying down and then rose from the ground. She described it as a massive gray figure with glowing red eyes. Letting out a scream, Marcella dropped her infant daughter. She was frozen in fear. As the creature began unfurling its wings, Raymond sprang into action, grabbing Marcella and scooping up her infant Tina and running back into the house, bolting the door behind them. As they did this, the creature rushed the house, eventually peering through the window as it couldn't get in, and as the children began to scream, Raymond dialed the police. Over the next several days, multiple reports all over the city began pouring in. The Mothman had been sighted again and again, chasing cars, frightening animals, and frightening the elderly. Residents of Point Pleasant were overwhelmed with a gripping sense of fear. Altogether, more than 100 sightings were reported in the span of one year. So between 1966 and 1967, for about 12 or 13 months, there were hundreds of reports of the Mothman attacking vehicles, coming in and accosting people, and so many people claimed that when they saw the Mothman or if they saw his eyes or his face, they were overcome with this overwhelming sense of dread, this overwhelming gripping fear that they couldn't get rid of for months or years to come. Along with these sightings of the Mothman, there were numerous reports of encounters with the men in black, as well as reports of UFOs and menacing lights in the sky. John Keel was convinced that these strange occurrences and the men in black and the UFOs and the Mothman, that they were all interconnected. Now that leads us to perhaps one of the more menacing reports from the area, and that is of Indrid Cold. So before we talk about Indrid Cold, we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth in our next episode. But John had this theory about ultra-terrestrials and this theory that Point Pleasant was a window. So Point Pleasant was a window to the other side or a window to another dimension. So in our next episode, we'll talk about the ultra-terrestrials and that theory that John had a little bit more. But if this theory that John had about everything in Point Pleasant being interconnected if it actually is true, then this next encounter, this next entity that we'll discuss, Indrid Cold, would be connected with the Mothman through UFO sightings. And, you know, Indrid Cold has this connection with UFO sightings, with the Mothman, with Men in Black. And in the Mothman prophecies in the film, one of the most frightening parts of the film, which in our next episode we'll discuss a little bit more about the film, but the scenes with Indrid Cold in the film, those were frightening. His voice, the quick cut scenes, the editing that they did, I really found the scenes with Indrid Cold really, really terrifying. So I can only imagine what it would be like to actually have an encounter with Indrid Cold in person. Now, Indrid is also known as the Grinning Man or the Smiling Man. Because the large, toothy grin that he has is in every encounter. Previously, Kyo had interviewed two boys who reported an encounter with an entity similar to that of Indrid Cold, but this encounter was in New Jersey. On October 11, 1966, at around 10 p.m. at night in Elizabeth, New Jersey, two boys were walking home. As they stopped to catch their breath, one of the boys saw a shadowy humanoid figure, which was standing in thick bushes on the other side of a tall wire fence. Now, the decline on the side, on the other side of this fence, the boys said that it was so steep that no one would or even could climb over the top of it, and they said that they have never ever seen anyone on the other side of this fence. So one boy 
sees this figure, this dark, ominous figure standing in thick bushes. And as the other boy turns and notices the figure, he could see a huge figure wearing a green one-piece suit that shimmered as it reflected the lights from the street lamps above. This case is really interesting because these boys describe Indrid, or this figure, as having small beady eyes that were wide set apart and they couldn't remember seeing any hair or ears or nose on this figure. Regardless, when the figure noticed the boys' gaze, he pivoted, facing them, and he had a giant, toothy grin plastered across his face. When both boys saw this, they wasted no time in running away as quickly as they could. On November 2nd, 1966, Woodrow Derenberg was driving down Interstate 77 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia on a rainy, dark evening. While driving, he noticed a vehicle behind him approaching to pass. As it passed him and went in front of his vehicle, he realized it wasn't a car, but it was a charcoal gray vehicle that resembled, quote, an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney flaring at both ends and narrowing down to a small neck and then enlarging in a great bulge in the center. So we'll post that on the socials. I found a, a photograph of kind of describing what he was talking about. So this is really interesting because this is like less than a month later and he's having, he's seeing this vehicle and we'll see that he has an encounter with Indrid Cold, but it's, it's interesting to note the differences between the two encounters. As the vehicle went in front of him, a door slid open on the side of the craft and when this happened, a feeling came over Woodrow that he should roll down his window. A figure emerged from the craft. He was about five feet, ten inches tall, with long, dark hair combed straight back, and he had heavily tanned skin. He was wearing a dark top coat with a metallic, glistening, greenish material underneath. The man was grinning a wide-tooth-filled smile with his arms tucked underneath his armpits. Now, when I heard this description, the first thing that came to my mind was like this combination of the Joker and a Guido, like just this massive smile and the slicked back hair. So that's the first thing that came to my mind, just like, a, like Indrid Cold is a combination of a Guido and the Joker. Cold spoke to Woodrow telepathically, and he told him not to be afraid. He said, we mean you no harm. I come from a country much less powerful than yours. When you have a flying, like a giant flying kerosene lamp, and you have a green flashing one-piece suit on, you know, your, your, your kerosene lamp is floating in the sky. I'm going to say your country's probably more powerful than ours. If these are your vehicles, then what kind of weapons do you have? Anyway, I, I highly doubt that Indrid's planet is less powerful than ours, or Indrid's country is less powerful than ours. Or I guess this would be the U.S., but either way. You have a giant floating kerosene lamp. I think you're probably more powerful than me. Cold asked Woodrow for his name. And after he told him, Cold replied, My name is Cold. I sleep, breathe, and even bleed as you do. Good to know. Okay. Cold pointed at the city in the distance and asked what it was. Woodrow explained that it was a city a place where people live and work. And Indrid stated where he was from, such places were called gatherings. While speaking telepathically, Cold's craft ascended and hovered 40 or 50 feet above the road, allowing other vehicles to pass. Before departing, Indrid said, My name is Cold. I will be visiting you again. After their conversation had concluded, the craft descended, Cold entered the craft, and it rose quickly and silently into the night. Now, the interesting part about this story is that the next day, people came forward saying that they had seen Woodrow speaking to a man on the side of the road. One woman said that herself and her two children saw the craft in question fly across the highway around the same time that Woodrow says the craft departed from his view. 
Eventually, Woodrow would claim that after his encounter, Cold had returned numerous times. He stated that Cold informed him he was from the planet Lanulos in the galaxy of Ganymedes. Woodrow further claimed that Cold had taken him to his home planet of Lanulos, where everyone wore colorful shorts and all the words on signs he saw were of squiggly writing. Later, Derenberger and even his wife would both claim that two other grinning men by the names of Demo Hassan and Carl Ardo had visited them. His wife claimed that the grinning men had an evil agenda. That was the one thing that his, his wife would say is that these two, at least these two, maybe not Indrid Cold, but maybe all of them, the, the grinning men had an evil agenda. Derenberger's wife, she later divorced Woodrow, but regardless, he wrote a book called Visitors from Lanulos that details his encounters with the grinning men and their home planet Lanulos. One additional Point Pleasant sighting of injured cold, it took place at the rural home of the Lily family. One thing that we, we're not really going to talk about is all the poltergeist activity. If you want to learn more about ghosts, we've got a couple ghosty episodes, and we're going to do some more in the future. I know some people have been asking for more of that. But we, we're not really talking about all the poltergeist activity that happened in Point Pleasant around this time. But again, it connects to that theory that John had about this uh, interconnectedness of all these paranormal things, all these UFOs and, and all these you know, strange occurrences that were happening at Point Pleasant around this time. And there was a lot of poltergeist activity. There was a lot of people experiencing weird, strange hauntings, quote-unquote, and experiences at their houses. So it's, this, it's not a, a main point of the story, the poltergeist activity, but it is something to note. This family, the Lily family, they were experiencing some of this poltergeist activity themselves. Along with this poltergeist activity, they were seeing peculiar lights in the sky. According to Miss Lily, they saw blue, green, and red lights which would illuminate the sky, and occasionally these lights would change color. She also stated that, on occasion, the lights were dim enough that they saw what appeared to be diamond-shaped windows within these lights. The encounter with the grinning man, or Indrid Cold, it didn't occur to the whole family, however. It occurred to their daughter, Linda Lily. One night, Linda Lily was awoken by a dark, ominous figure at the foot of her bed. She said she couldn't make out his face, but she did see a big, toothy grin. She's sleeping, and she wakes up just to see this big, toothy grinned, ginormous, ominous figure standing at the foot of her bed. She pulls the covers over her face as she screams, and when she peered back out from under the covers, the ominous figure was gone. To me, I just picture the Cheshire cat when he's floating in the air, and all you see is his big toothy grin before that too disappears. In our next episode, we'll discuss some theories about the Mothman, and we'll, we'll talk about whether or not it's a, an omen of death, or if it brings death itself. One interesting case is that of Marilyn Broca Hall. Now, Marilyn was sleeping in her room, and she heard a noise outside and went to the window to investigate. Once at the window, she saw a six-foot dark figure with glowing red eyes emerge seemingly out of nowhere. Frightened, she went back to bed but not thinking much of it. A few months after the Mothman sighting in her backyard, her father was in a deadly plane crash. TWA Flight 128 was a regularly scheduled Transworld Airlines passenger flight from Los Angeles to Boston. This flight had intermediate stops in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh as well. On November 20th, 1967, Flight 128 crashed on final approach to Greater Cincinnati Airport. 70 of the 82 people aboard the Convair 880 were killed.
Of the 82 people on board the aircraft, 60 were killed immediately, and another 10 died in the days following the crash. 12 people, two crew members and 10 passengers, survived with mere injuries. One of the surviving passengers reported that the plane broke apart in front of him and he stepped out and ran from the wreckage before it exploded. This is another one of those instances where it's like, you know, and and like I said, we'll discuss more about this in the next episode, but this is leading me to believe that there is some sort of meaning behind these Mothman encounters. So we're in Point Pleasant. Nothing really happens here. It's a small town. There's not much going on. I'm I'm 90% sure that around the around the late 60s that this area there was no alcohol. Um whether or not it was prohibition, I don't know, but it was definitely uh there was no bars in this town. That was something that was noted before. So when people heard about the Mothman, that's when they armed up and they went out into the woods because It's a small town, there's literally nothing else to do, so let's go shoot some stuff in the woods, right? With these these sightings of the Mothman, with these experiences over hundreds, you know, like hundreds of people saying, I've encountered the Mothman, I've seen a UFO, people saying, I've seen Indrid Cold. So we have all of these experiences happening. And then we have a woman who saw the Mothman, and her father was in a, a flight that had crashed a few months after seeing the Mothman. Now, this this plane that crashed, it actually happened after the collapse of the Silver Bridge. The Silver Bridge was a suspension bridge first opened to traffic in 1928. This bridge connected Point Pleasant with Galapolis, Ohio. And the reason it was called the Silver Bridge was because of the metallic aluminum paint that they used to paint the bridge. The Silver Bridge was constructed by the American Bridge Company, who opted for a cheaper way of constructing the bridge. In a modern suspension bridge, the suspension cables are made up of many individual wires which are spun together, and this creates a strong cable. The Silver Bridge was made with long pieces of steel, known as I-bars, which were put together similar to the links in a bicycle chain. In this chain, a bolt holds the chains together, allowing the links to move in response to tension placed on the structure. This was the first bridge in the United States to use this I-bar link suspension system rather than a traditional wire cable system. One of these I-bars that held the links together, or held the chains together, it had a tiny defect in it. A small crack just 3 millimeters deep. This crack was located in a spot that made it difficult for members of the public, and especially bridge inspectors, to identify. So this this tiny crack was in such an odd spot that nobody found it, and that is really what led to the the, uh, destruction or the collapse of this bridge. On December 15, 1967, at approximately 5 p.m., this defective I-bar failed. And this failure set off a chain of catastrophic failures that would lead to the bridge's collapse and the deaths of 46 people. One resident, Charlene Wood, was driving onto the bridge when she felt it begin to violently rock and shake back and forth. Feeling this <laughs> crazy sensation of the bridge, like, you, like it feels like it's going to collapse, she put her car into reverse Luckily, she was able to move back far enough, around four feet, from the edge of the bridge. She was about 60 seconds away from being pitched into the Ohio River. I could only imagine what that would feel like, just having this instinct to get off the bridge and back up, and just as you get your tires off of the bridge, back, you know, boom, the whole thing falls out from underneath you. Like, you were literally right there. And you just happen to back up and boom, like right, like the instant that your tires get off of the area, boom, it just collapses from underneath you. Crazy. Bill Needham wasn't as lucky as his vehicle was thrown into the river. He escaped, however, through an open window 
and he used a nearby box as a flotation device. As ingenious as that is, unfortunately, his partner, Robert Toe, couldn't escape the vehicle. State trooper Rudy O'Dell was helpless as he watched in horror as the bridge pitched the vehicles into the river. He stated, I could hear them hollering for help. I didn't know how many there were at that time, and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. It was a long way out into the water. The collapse of the Silver Bridge sent a total of 31 vehicles into the Ohio River that night. 64 people were plunged into its icy waters, and out of those 64, 46 people died. The collapse of the Silver Bridge remains the deadliest bridge disaster in United States history. I think that's pretty much it for today's episode, but in our next episode, we'll continue our discussion about the Mothman and about Point Pleasant. But more specifically, we're going to talk about some theories about what the Mothman could be, or if the Mothman is real, why the Mothman's here. We'll go into more detail about the ultra-terrestrials and John Keel's theories about how they've been influencing humankind for centuries. And we'll also talk about a news reporter from Point Pleasant, Mary Heyer, and we'll talk about her encounters with the Men in Black and her newspaper article based on all the weird paranormal and strange occurrences and weird sightings of entities and creatures throughout Point Pleasant. So in addition to all of that, we are also going to be talking about the Mothman film. So we're, we're not going to sit here and do like a whole giant review, but I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts on the film and I'll tell you um, a few things that I thought were really interesting that tied into the Mothman, the book, because it, it is based on the book, uh, but there's a lot of stuff that they change. There's a few things that they tweak and, you know, they, you, I'll talk about it a little bit more in our next episode, but they even kind of split the personality of John Keel into two different people, into, into two different characters. So that's another interesting thing. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you enjoy our next episode, and I hope you join us for our next episode. Hello, hello, ghouls, ghosts, goblins, and everything in between. Welcome to Across the Veil with host Emma and Zelda. We're two amateur cryptozoologists on a mission to explore the things that lie beyond. Beyond what? I, I, I don't know. The, the veil? It, it just sounds poetic and mysterious. True. <laughs> Learn about cryptids, folklore, monsters, and things that are just kind of haunted. Anything that seems a little otherworldly and strange. Just like us. <laughs> New episodes out every Thursday on all of your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at across.the.veil and Twitter at acrosstheveil1. We hope you join us next time. Across the Veil. Hey, it's Dan from the Pop Culture Hootenanny Podcast, and I just want to give you a little intro breakdown of what our show is. We're kind of a movie review podcast. We talk about random nonsense that comes up from the backstories, behind-the-scenes stories, and whatever else we want to talk about during our episodes. Uh, here's a few clips to check us out. There's a... Why do we cheer on... And this is a question for what we can discuss right now. Why do we cheer on sociopaths in movies where we know that they're doing wrong in almost every single way? Because we like the I, hijinks that ensue. Because it's, yeah, we, it's, it, we like the hijinks that ensues, right? Art and Tony. Art and Tony. Yeah. They're the best written characters. Right? You know what I mean? Like, she's trying to make amends and saying the kids would love to have you over and I would love to have you over. And then as soon as he gets that okay, he just starts digging into the fact that she changed her name, right? And I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. This is the 80s. Changing your name in the 80s is kind of a big fucking statement. We have so many jaded tropes in our head. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, 
there are certain movies that will try to make something look serious and for a younger generation it might be their version of let's say arnold calling out the predator one two three four pop culture This episode is produced by Death Hotel Creative, hosted by myself, Dr. Mystery. To view more and to grab your exclusive Cabinet of Mystery merch, visit us at notwhatwesay.com. You can check out our Instagram handle at Cabinet of Mystery or our Twitter at Open the Cabinet. Please leave us a review if you enjoyed the show and let us know what topics you'd like to hear in the future. You can let us know either on the socials or at cabinetofmystery at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voice message and appear in upcoming episodes, leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash cabinetofmystery. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe or follow for more episodes.